morning, everybody. We're going to be reading the whole chapter of uh, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, uh, do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that a friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, uh, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Please be seated. Good morning. Today's text is James chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. We will also be pulling in verse 4 as a starting point for today, because really verses 1 through 10 are one passage, one subject, but we divided it into two instead of doing one two-hour sermon. Uh, A short summary of the whole 1 through 10 passage will will bear out that it's really a one unit. Uh, <clears throat> in verses 1 through 3 from last Sunday, those verses revealed the advanced state of sin and ungodliness and the lack of blessing and peace to which some of the believers James was addressing in this letter had descended. And then in verse 4, is the diagnosis. James clearly identified the underlying issues of the heart, issues that had been ignored for some time, evidently, resulting in a downward slide to their current state before God. And then verse 5 is a bridge between verses 1 through 4, especially the diagnosis in verse 4, and the cure in verses 6 through 10. It points to the fact that God speaks. He expresses his will and purpose. And as a consequence, the believer's responsibility to 
to God, to hear and obey, is not optional. It also underscores the fact that the controlling issues of our new life in Christ are issues of the heart. We must keep that in mind throughout many passages, but this is certainly one of them. And then in verse 6, verse 6 is the pivotal and immovable word of God on the subject. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This brings the focus back to the issues of the heart, specifically our heart attitude toward God. It is the truth that sets us free, leading out of the sin and confusion that results from walking after the flesh and leading toward a humble walk with God. And then in verses 7 through 10, this calls for the believer's humble response to God himself, the necessary response to the truth of his word that has laid bare the thoughts and intents of the heart. In these verses, there is a series of concise commands, humble responses to the sin that God's word has exposed is what's called for. These verses also include precious promises, giving a sure hope that godly sorrow and true repentance will result in a humble walk with God that will be priceless now and ultimately lead to glory of heaven. Now, I want to insert a parenthetical thought here about verse 5. I debated whether to even skip over this totally, but just thinking about the many different translations that are probably represented here, and and, uh, so many of them uh, will read differently here. And there's a reason. The wording of the second half of the verse 5 has been a challenge for translators for centuries, not because of the words themselves, but because the words as a phrase could be understood two or three different ways. None of them really absolutely clear as far as how it sits and how it communicates between verse 4 and verse 6 and following. But so I, I did go ahead and spend some time studying it and it was actually quite a blessing in disguise because it turns out that the different ways that the second half of verse 5 can be understood all point, directly or indirectly, to the same important truth which underscores that the Lord's heart of covenant love for the church is the basis for his righteous demand that our heart be exclusively his. So it's just a matter of whether it's directly or indirectly. So if it's understood directly as the Holy Spirit jealously desiring our wholehearted love and devotion, that's, uh, I'm sure several of your translations will read that, something like that. But it can also be indirect. It's pointing to the fact that the Holy Spirit does not lead us into envy. And that would be referring to the previous verses, 1 through 3, plus, uh, clear back into the end of chapter 3, which refers to envy. So the Holy Spirit does not lead us in that direction. The end of chapter 3 made that very clear. It was distinct from God's wisdom, which is pure and peaceable. So that envy is a worldly trait and a sin. Results from loving the world and the things of the world. So that would be the connection to 1 through 4. We cannot love Christ with purity and simplicity and also love the world or the things of the world. That is forbidden 
and also impossible. So that's why in verse 4, which is where we're starting, loving the world is called adultery. Now as a whole passage, verses 1 through 10, this passage contains some of the most direct and even harsh rebukes to believers to be found in the New Testament. Perhaps some quick thoughts that might rush to our mind before we have a chance to really check them. Is James being mean or unloving? This would be a good time to recall and consider again that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this is why we're here today. So at, at the end of Peter's second epistle, he mentioned Paul's epistles as already being recognized as Holy Scripture and that some were twisting what Paul had written to their own destruction. And then he ended his epistle with these final words. This is chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, 2 Peter. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Those are strong, sobering words of warning. Verse 17, Peter had already seen some that had strayed from the knowledge of the truth. Paul also wrote of some who had shipwrecked their faith. Now, in our study of the epistle of James thus far, how the Holy Spirit has inspired James to write some of the most practical and helpful scriptures, especially in regard to the purpose of trials and the nature of temptation. As we continue, we need to consider that the same Holy Spirit that guided James, his heart and his hand, as he wrote chapter 1, is the same Holy Spirit that guided him as he wrote chapter 4. The Spirit evidently knew that some of the believers James was writing to had become callous and in need to be rebuked sharply, to be awakened to the dangerous course they were on. They were headed for shipwreck. This is God's goodness that he would speak to them this way. In the words of James, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, they had already been drawn away by their own selfish desires and enticed. Their desires had now conceived, as he promised, as he warned. They had given birth to sin, and sin now is well on its way to full grown and would soon bring forth death. God's word is true. This is where they were headed. So this stern warning is a loving, stern rebuke. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, after recounting that the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt was followed by their fall in the wilderness, literally, they were left on the floor of the desert, a whole generation. It said then in verse 11, Now all these things happened to them 
as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. So let's bear in mind that this passage in James 4 is also written for our admonition. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would exhort and teach us today by your Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside to instruct and help us. Exhort us through your holy word, individually and together as a church, whom you have betrothed to yourself. A church you intend to present yourself to yourself as a chaste virgin, one that has been washed clean by the pure words of our Savior and lover of our souls. May we hear even in these difficult words the voice and heart of our Lord and Bridegroom. May we receive this passage in James 4 as it truly is, your word. May we then live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Lord, these pure words of yours are intended to cleanse and purify your bride. May your word purify us and make us vessels of honor in your great house as we flee and pursue according to your word. For your sake and your glory, we pray. Amen. As I was considering the the starting point, being verse 4 of this message, I was reminded of some haunting words from a few lines of a song that had challenged me many years ago. Probably 30 or so. Back in the 80s, at some point, I think. The song is called, You Love the World. It's by Keith Green. You might remember Keith Green. Some of you. He was a human being like the rest of us. So, he had his quirks like the rest of us. He had his weaknesses He had his sins. But there's one thing you can say about him. It's easier to say now because he's already there. He died quite a few years ago. Taken to see the Lord a little early. But one thing that he wasn't was cold. And he wasn't lukewarm either. I remember when there were some other, in that day, some CCM artists that were interviewed after he had passed on. It's still, you know, just as I thought about this, that's also where my thoughts went because it was so hard to hear. One of the comments, and there were many like this, but one of them in particular I remember. He said, Keith made us uncomfortable. As I thought about this 
This week, I thought, I wonder if James' words made them uncomfortable. Was that what it was for? Or was it to call them to repentance? One that would just say, oh, that made me uncomfortable. That means they could stop, they could gradually ease back into not being uncomfortable because uh, Keith wasn't around anymore. I call that to mind, the rest of you, to remind us that when the Lord speaks, it's, it's serious business. If his purpose is to call us to repentance, then we better be listening. The song, You Love the World, I don't have all of it written here, just, just the things that kind of call back to my mind. I want you here with, this is Jesus speaking to his people. I want you here with me. But you've been keeping other company. You can't sit still. It's plain to see. You love the world and you're avoiding me. My word sits there upon your desk, but you love your books and magazines the best. You prefer the light of your TV. You love the world and you're avoiding me. And as I was contemplating that in my own life, I was also thinking of, of just the, the accoutrements of the world that call for our attention. And as I sometimes do, I kind of move in the direction of poetry anyway, so I just imagine what Keith might have written if he were writing it today. That last stanza. My word sits there on your iPod. But you love Facebook and cool apps more than God. You prefer the light of your PC. You love the world and you're avoiding me. The song goes on to say, again, this is Jesus speaking, Oh, I gave my blood to save your life. Tell me, tell me, is it right? Tell me, will you leave me here alone again tonight? Obviously, this is not referring to a a real relationship. It's this way, the Lord, but it's speaking toward our heart, toward him. So I just... Let my mind wonder to some other questions and thoughts. Do we go to places with an attitude of leaving him behind? Does it even occur to us to ask the Lord what he wants? And if not, why not? Jesus taught that we should go into our rooms and close the door and spend time with God in prayer? Do we instead go into our rooms or offices, wherever, and turn to our books and magazines or various electronic devices and shut out God and spend time with the world? According to Jesus' teaching, 
in James 4, verse 4. We are either shutting out one and spending time with the other, or vice versa. They are mutually exclusive. Do we consider entering into activities? Asking the question, is this activity sinful? Is it sinful? Instead of asking, as Paul asked on the road to Damascus, when the Lord confronted him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are two very different questions, aren't they? That speak to the heart. And so, day to day, our day to day, is Jesus Christ our Lord and Master? Or is he more like a friend? Someone to like on Facebook. An important relationship to keep reasonably current. I mean, after all, he is our Savior. What is our attitude? Lord and Master? Or Buddy? Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's 1 Corinthians 10, 22. The central message of this text is that God demands all our heart, all of our love. That is the central message throughout Scripture. In Matthew 22, a teacher of the law asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Does that leave anything else? Any other place in our heart? Jesus is God. It's either first place or no place. When Jesus taught about the kingdom, he taught that he was Lord and Master and the coming king of the kingdom. He taught that our part in the kingdom would be like a man discovering a treasure hidden in a field, or a merchant who found one pearl of surpassing value. In both cases, the response was to sell everything they had in order to obtain what they recognized was truly priceless. Have we recognized that Jesus Christ is priceless? The pearl of great price and worth everything. John 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace does not come absent truth. The gospel is good news, the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but it is only properly viewed on the backdrop of our devastating sin problem that dooms us to hell for all eternity, except for his Sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. It is his grace that draws us to faith in Christ and saves us. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created to walk with him and to walk in the good works he has planned. It is by that same grace of God that he trains and empowers us to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to, do, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. His grace is a saving grace, a redeeming grace, a training grace, and a purifying grace. He gave himself for us, and he is purifying us for himself. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Would you please turn to first to 2 Corinthians Chapter 11. I'm just going to read two verses. But I'd like for you to just see them. Verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. <clears throat> But I fear, lest somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Surely, at an elemental level, this is what has happened to the, some of the believers that James is writing to. Do you see the connection to this text? Are they pure, given holy to God? No, they're adulterers and adulteresses in heart. In verse 4 of James chapter 4, God has not suggested that a little too much friendship with the world might eventually become a problem. No, he has told us that anyone who even wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Isn't that what it says? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's because our heart is divided. We're double-minded. And the Lord regards it as adultery. The verses we just heard from First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians explain why. Christ 
with the price of his own innocent blood, has purchased us for himself, and he has betrothed us to himself. Look now at verse 5 of James 4. The tone of the first phrase is unmistakable. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain? Regardless of what follows, that is a strong warning for those he just called adulterers and adulteresses. He's trying to wake them up because this is in fact how they're living, to treat the scriptures as if it's speaking in vain. Without thinking about it, aren't they scorning scriptures? And we're about to get something about that in verse 6. He's warning them. And an additional rebuke is there for having disregarded the scriptures, including the teachings of the one who walked among them, whose name they are now bearing dishonorably. Jesus taught throughout that he was Lord and Master. The cost of discipleship was high. The cross. It's the intent of our Savior to save us. Think about some of the scriptures that refer to his salvation, but also connected to his word. He sent his word and heals us. But he may first have to tear us before he can heal us. Hosea 5, verse 14 through 6, 1. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. They will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And then the response from his people. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. It's an Old Testament example of the necessity for the Lord chastening his people. If the Lord rebukes, we should be deeply thankful for his faithful love when we have been unfaithful. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. Let us not forget the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now if you look at the second half of verse 5, James 4, it speaks of the intense, jealous yearning of the indwelling Holy Spirit that our whole heart be reserved for Christ alone. This is the scripture that they've been treating in vain, as if it spoke in vain. Part of the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. But now in the fullness of time, Christ has purchased us for himself. We have a new covenant relationship with him that is exclusive. And our devotion must be wholehearted, our lives single-minded. He is rightly jealous for us as a husband is rightly jealous for his wife. I want us to take a moment here and think about 
husband, wife, relationships, because this is what the word puts before us as example. Which of us, who among us, who are married, would be just fine with their spouse giving lip service to love and commitment while their heart is elsewhere? Anyone? Would an obligatory weekly show of affection make that any better? If so, then there would be two hearts astray, wouldn't there? For those not married and perhaps wanting to be, would you be okay with that kind of arrangement going into marriage? For all of us then, what kind of arrangement do we present to the lover of our souls? What is our commitment to Christ as indicated by how we live, not what we say? And more importantly, as judged by the one who sees the thoughts and intents of our heart. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, has spoken these words here in James 4. Piercing, dividing, laying bare these hearts. And if we're receiving it as admonition for us as well, our hearts. They're laid bare by the sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. Grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. If this is the truth about the condition of our heart revealed by his word, then we need his grace in the worst way. And thank God, that's where we immediately go to then in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Even in this difficult passage as James is writing it, he begins with encouragement and hope. We're probably familiar with Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But it does continue into verse 21. We find that his grace is intended to reign in us through righteousness. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that you have so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Second Corinthians nine eight. God stands ready to make all grace abound to us, and we need more grace. So why then would we remain entangled with the world with divided hearts and double minded? If we take a peek forward for a minute in verses seven through ten, we see a call to take some steps toward the Lord. It's as if once the first step is taken, others would quickly follow. We're not going right there now, but just want to take note. There are short, quick, concise commands. We might liken it then to our our need of grace, our need for release. It's like pent-up waters needing a release. The spirit yearns deeply and jealously that we draw near to God with all our hearts. 
He speaks to us through the scriptures, revealing and convicting us of our need to draw near. The waters will begin to flow if we take the first step to release them. God has not stopped the flow of his grace. We have. And what is behind the lies of the enemy of our soul? It's the enemy of our soul, Satan, who has lied to us, just like he did with Eve. What is the stopper? What's holding the grace back that we so desperately need? The answer is there. Pride. Now, you might think we've been talking about a divided heart, double-mindedness, adultery of the heart. How is it that pride is suddenly presented in verse 6? Presented like this is the big issue. Did he just switch? Decide to move on to something else? No. He's going deeper. If our heart is not completely his, this is the reason why. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, we read it earlier. It says, Eve was deceived by the craftiness of Satan, deceiver. Satan became known as Satan. The name meaning the adversary, the one who opposes another. Because as an angel of God, he was lifted up in pride. He desired to be like God. Not out of love and adoration of God, he was lifted up in pride. He wanted to act independently of God. Did not want to receive, to be under subjection of his kind rule. He wanted to be exalted as an independent being. And he suddenly found a sovereign God arrayed against him. For God resists the proud. That's actually the, the meaning behind the word resist. It's, a, it's a, like a military term. To draw up and battle array against As you know, he lost. But so would we if we rise up in pride against God, just as surely. When Satan tempts us to sin, and think about how he did this with Eve, his most subtle craftiness is exercised to hide the fact that pride is at the root of all sin. We are tempted to sin through our own desires, James 1, verse 14, but we remain in sin because of our pride. If we don't humble ourselves and receive his grace, it's like a one-way valve. We don't get back the other way. God must resist us, and there's no grace. And that's the only thing that's going to save us. We're saved by his grace to start with. Brethren, we're saved continually by his grace. It's only by his grace that we continue to stand. We know and love the wonderful promise of Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Yes, but if we are walking in pride, God is against us. What then? 
His promise is not without regard to whether we're walking in pride or humility. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. When we consider the unbeliever, the unbeliever is held in sin's dread sway, as one hymn says, because he is dead in trespasses and sins. There's no surprise there. Unless and until he is awakened and drawn to Christ, saved by grace through faith in Christ, he remains in darkest night. But for the true Christian to remain in sin and become accustomed to that condition is against his new nature in Christ. What a travesty and what a loss. We have been created for good works in Christ. If we abide in him and grow and bear fruit, fruit that remains, that gives him glory. John 15. To live otherwise is to rob God of the glory he is due. The Lord Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls, has given his life's blood to redeem us for himself and has given us his sure promise to wash us clean that we may be a pure and spotless bride, to make us ready for when he returns or calls us home. Would we hold at length the lover of our souls? And hold on to the empty, deceptive lies of the enemy of our souls? This is exactly what we do if we're walking in pride. Would we squander the one life he has given us here, for which we must give an account? What will we do? Remember the parable about the talent? What will we do with our life? Will we dig it up? Knock some dirt off and give it back to God with a lame excuse. Meaning a life that, where we just walk in pride. No fruit, barren, as Second Peter chapter 1 says. Do we really grasp the result of living this way? Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We are saved by his grace, but his continuing daily grace is the only provision by which we are trained and strengthened to obey the Lord and abide in him. Bearing fruit, then, that remains. Without his daily grace, we will not grow. We will not bear fruit. Galatians 6.8 For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Beloved, if you have been sowing to the flesh, deceived by the father of lies into thinking that there is any good from any source other than our Father in heaven, who is the only source of every good gift and every perfect gift, then You must do what Eve and Adam did not do in that moment of decision. His grace is available. 
You'll humble your pride. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth that had been so bright and bobbly will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The eyes that we turn upon Jesus must be humble eyes. Haughty eyes will not see the light of his glory and grace. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. If we're not poor in spirit, if we're not humble, we won't see. Second Peter chapter 1 talks about that as well as an outcome. Short-sighted to the point of blindness, barren, unfruitful. But as Psalm 51 verse 22 says, a humble and contrite heart, he will not turn away. We must humble ourselves before Almighty God and begin to take the steps he has laid out in his word. He desires our humble obedience. It is his way and it is the only way. Some more verses from Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David says to God, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. The linchpin in the dam, holding back his grace, is our pride. So how do we pull it out? Where do we start? Let's begin to look at verses 7 through 10 now. James 4. Verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first step is the big step. Different wording. This is humbling our pride. It is saying as David did in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It is acknowledging that we have been deceived by Satan's craftiness. That's one of the many things our pride will fight against, even acknowledging that we have been deceived. We couldn't be deceived. We must acknowledge it. And being deceived, we have believed Satan's smears of God's character and trustworthiness. Remember, this is the very essence of his temptation to Eve. If we do this, the cleansing water of the truth of his word begins to flow and increase. A stream of his grace will strengthen us with every acknowledgement of what is true. As light dispels darkness, as truth exposes the lies, his grace will train us to say no to ungodliness. When we have submitted to God, he's God, we're not. Submit to him, get under him, he's Lord, he's Master. 
when we have submitted to God, we can then resist the devil. Now, we do not need to get into a word fight, no slinging of epithets to Satan. We can take a cue from the archangel Michael, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Let the Lord handle that part. But note, resist the devil. It's a command. It's not an option. We must resist. We must resist his lies by exposing them with the truth of God's word. For this, we'll need to stay alert for the lies. We'll need to know his word. But remember, first, we must submit to God. That's the starting point. That's removing the linchpin. Humbling our pride. Then as 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 say, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. That's the basis for our battle. Faith, faith in God. Faith in his character that we had been perhaps believing lies about. Our faith must be in God who loved us and gave himself for us. If we are walking this way, we might notice that the cleansing flow of the word over our souls is getting stronger. We must not stop here. We must also learn to say no to the demands and complaints of our flesh, which wars against the Spirit. If we do not, then we have left a foothold for Satan, and he will exploit it. This is why we need to continue on to verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here is one of the Lord's precious promises in the midst of a difficult but necessary chastening. When we draw near to Him in true humility and sincerity, He draws near to us. And oh, how we need His nearness. For some of you, I, I hope many, this will resonate. Have you noticed the precious relief and comfort that comes to your child and to you also when after chastening them, you gather them near? There's nothing quite like it. It's a refreshing, flowing, cleansing stream. The Holy Spirit wells up from within, bearing witness that you are his child. That's what happens in our child, in that example. It's what happens to us when we submit to God, resist Satan, stop believing the lies, draw near to God. And he draws near to us and gathers us in. At this point, you may begin to remember some things you had suppressed or had forgotten, maybe, out of 
dullness to his spirit over time. Things that you now begin to be ashamed of. Don't hide them. Confess them to God. I just want to remind you that these, verse 7 through 10, 7 through 9 especially, several short, concise commands, it's a sequence. And I just want you to see how the Lord intends for it, for it to be, if, if you deal with the, the one that's hardest to start with, then it's, you've, you've pulled the linchpin out of the dam and it starts getting wider. Every step you take, it's better, more grace. This is his way. But in the midst of this, many would, would testify to this that we've suppressed some things because they're uncomfortable to think about. We feel guilty about them. And so once we draw near to God, some of those things, they come back to mind. Deal with it his way. Continue to walk the same way. Don't draw back. Draw nearer. Continue to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. If there are steps to take, walk through it. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A precious promise. In Psalm 51, part of verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Our confession must be on the basis of truth. On the inside. His grace will help us. He will reveal things to us if, that's, if, we're, if we're going His way. And especially once we begin to see the wonders of His grace, the cleansing of it. But we must keep on. Sometimes it's appropriate to confess our faults and sins to others as well. According to the wisdom from His Word, we can see the benefit of this in James 5 or 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. As we share with one another the bread of sincerity and truth, praying for one another, we're all strengthened. It sets and keeps us on a good and humble path. And remember, every sin confessed is a foothold of the enemy removed. This is the way up. This is the way of becoming more like Christ. This is the fight of faith. It's not a big battle out there. It's a big battle in here. Engage the enemy, but engage him on God's terms, in God's power, his grace. Stand firm in the faith. Hold your ground. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Don't just try to do this alone. The issue of our hearts is something we deal with alone for God. We see that in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. But in terms of walking, walking, we're to walk together. Be thankful that he has saved you, 
and that he is granting you abundant grace to continue to work out your salvation now with godly fear and trembling at his word. Thank him for continuing and increasing the flow of his cleansing power in your life. Now if we look at verse 9, might strike us a little odd in the sequence. Seemed like it was getting better. So now we're called to lament and mourn and weep. Yes. These believers, if we look at the example right here, the believers that James is addressing, that the Holy Spirit is calling through James' letter. And this can happen in our lives too. And we get to this point, if we have walked this way for a while, without His grace, walked in pride, we'll be facing wreckage and loss that our sins have caused to ourselves and to others. And we will indeed have reason to lament and mourn and weep. This is not penance. This is not beating ourselves up until we judge that it's been a sufficient beating that perhaps God will accept us. No. None of that. We must stay on the path of humility, first of all. It's a sincere grief over having believed lies about our God and Savior. It's first sincere grief toward Him. And then as we see the, the outcome, and that we did this to God, who loved us still, and who loves us still, and held on to us. He was faithful, though we were not. And then it's lamenting over having robbed God of glory that he is due. It's mourning over and weeping over lost opportunity, lost fruit for God. It may even be lost children or lost lives. We can make a mess of things. What will we do? Run from it? Hide from it? True godly sorrow. True godly sorrow leads to repentance. That leads to a changed life. That flows out of a true humility and gratitude for his mercy. He has shown us his mercy in rescuing us from a shameful end at best. So be willing. Be willing to grieve, but know that this is not something that goes on and on. I'm not looking to, to equate this exactly, but the scripture comes to mind that weeping lasts for a night. Joy comes in the morning. The Lord will lift us up. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. Another precious promise. But don't look to be exalted in this life. Wasn't that the previous problem? Being lifted up in pride, 
following the example of the deceiver? This is the Lord's gracious promise to bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. You, along with all his saints, will be glorified when we see him face to face. And we will forever praise his glorious grace that raised us to new life in Christ and continued to rescue and strengthen and train us, to transform us into his image. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Holy Spirit's purpose for all these commands, verse 7 through 10. These charges that he's given us through James, it's the same purpose as through Paul and Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And in the words of 1 Corinthians 7.35, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. It's a heart matter. And his commands are not burdensome. His truth sets us free. Our humility removes the hindrance to his grace. And we find that God's supply of grace is truly endless and abundant. There is grace for every trial. And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Which brings us to a final point. If you have returned to God in humility and godly sorrow, and he has restored you, You've not then reached an end point. Actually, you have been restored to health. Keep your spiritual health by abiding in him and obeying his word. Continue to yield your heart and your life to his command as the Holy Spirit reveals more of his will to you. And guard your heart with all diligence. You have been restored so that you can now walk humbly with your God, growing in him and bearing fruit that will last for eternity. Humility is never an end point, but rather a grace of the Spirit that makes us more like Christ and enables us to walk with Him in greater fruitfulness. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let us walk with God, glorifying Him, by demonstrating the power of his grace to transform us into his image and the sweetness of his grace as we walk humbly with him and with one another, waiting patiently for his return. Finally, James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Father, we thank you for this this word in James 4. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do your perfect work. Draw us to the humble walk with you that will bring us to be more like you 
and to bear fruit for you. Bring glory and honor to you now here on earth and to wait patiently till you return. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.